Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. I have with me Jason Fine, the editor of Rolling Stone. We're really happy to have him with us, but it's uh, not a happy occasion. We're going to be talking about the life and music of Toots Hibbert, who died at the age, we think, of 77 on September 11th. It's someone that Jason got to know really well and did an amazing feature that was months and months in the making that was published just before Toots' death. And so we really wanted to dig into why Toots was important and what made him special and the best of his music. And uh, first of all, I mean, Jason, this is someone you really got to know. So I, I'll, I'll say condolences. It's a, it's a tough and shocking thing. You, you just were with this guy. Yeah, I, I was. And up until the very end, um, even though I knew how bad it was, I really believed he would pull through. I had this sort of enduring image in my mind of the last time I saw him perform, which was in Brooklyn. And he would never even lift the microphone above his waist. He, his voice was so powerful, even at, at that age and with that much wow. ganja. Um, that he could fill a theater with basically no microphone. And I just kept thinking that a man with lungs like that would, would be able to pull through this. So yeah, it's shocking and, and sad. And, and also just, just such a great loss. You know, one of the things that when I wrote the story that I, I felt that I needed to say was that how few of these true originals really are left, people with a direct connection to where the music comes from. Um, and Toots was one of those guys, you know, he was there at the beginning and he was still there now. And so it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's a huge loss and, and also a personal loss, you know, thinking that I'll never, I'll never get a phone call from him or, or, or see him when I stop in through Kingston. So yes, it's very sad. And just to take a step back and contextualize him a little bit, this was a guy who until Bob Marley showed up was the biggest star in reggae even before they had the word reggae because he seems to have invented the word reggae that's how important he is to this whole thing yeah he was you know he like a lot of the singers who became the big reggae singers like bob um and peter tosh and and many of the others sort of came to kingston in 1961 62 right at the point that jamaica um, got independence from Britain. There was a lot of energy. There was a lot of spirit in the city at that time. And they came up through, you know, what was then rock steady music and ska music and then into reggae. Um, and Toots was the one. Toots was the star. Toots was the guy who, you know, I've never been able to document this, but he says 31 number one hits um, in those early days of the sound systems in Jamaica. And, you know, what happened was, in 1966, he won the, the big festival there, which was the Jamaican Song Festival, with a song called Bam Bam. Mm. And if you listen to that song, I mean, it's like, it's almost like Walk the Line or something. It's this statement of this moral purpose. And um, right after that song won the contest, he was arrested falsely um, for marijuana possession, which he hadn't, he hadn't even seen marijuana, he says at that time. And he was sort of put on ice in jail for nine months. And that sort of slowed him down. During that time, a lot of other singers got ahead, and including, and Marley went on his first tours and things. But yeah, up until that point, Toots was, Toots was the top dog. He comes close to telling you some of his theories about what happened there. He, he suggests a, a conspiracy of some sort to silence him at that point. How much do you, did you kind of buy into that? Well, 
what I know is that, you know, he was arrested just when he was becoming a, a really big star, just when he was about to travel internationally and, and try and take the music internationally. Um, he was cut short at that time. He seems to feel that it was politically motivated, um, that there was some influence of the, the police in conjunction with some other artist's manager to slow him down, to let some other artists ahead. He could wow. never really be specific. Sometimes he seemed like he wasn't sure. Other times he seemed like he was afraid to reveal the truth. But I think ultimately the most lasting damage of that is that it he was a trusting guy who grew up in the church. And I think that he had never been handled uh, maliciously like that. And I think it broke his trust. I think that um, that betrayal was something that he never, never got over. And I think that's really what's most important about it. Yeah, he did grow up in the church. And, and he really was, I, I would describe him among other things, he really was kind of a soul man. Like you can hear, uh, there was a lot of commonality, as you talked about with him, as there is in all reggae, of course, but with American R&B and soul, sometimes he, he sounded like uh, Solomon Burke or something to me, like like that degree of gospel in his delivery. And, and let's hear a clip of Jason talking with Toots about his roots in the church. One thing I, I never get to show you, the church that, I, that my parents took me to when I was younger. Yeah. But we can talk about it. Was yeah. the church was that the church where your father was the preacher? Yeah, my father and my mom. Um, yes, and it's a good church. We just called it Clapham Church, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and and that's where I was really. I grew up in that church, and that's where the the gospel music came from. Yes, that's where. Yes, you know, I think that uh, a lot of singers from Jamaica who started in the church like you mm -hmm. and became reggae singers and then moved in different directions. Even Jimmy Cliff went mm -hmm. in different directions. But you stuck, yeah. have always stuck very close to the gospel. Yes. <clears throat> even, even when you look around in America, most of my singers then, maybe Stables, you name it, some, all you guys, we all grew up in the church. Mm -hmm. That's why we are so good. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Nowadays, people, guys, they don't go up in church. They not even respect themselves. They don't know about God. Mm -hmm. They just do different things than what we used to do. Yeah, yeah, it's true. They didn't have that that grounding. The yeah, that grounding from the church. Mm. Hey, you know, mm -hmm. uh, Ray Charles go up in church. Everybody go up in church, and we can just spread our wings. I do it R and B, reggae, jazz, you know, rock and roll. Because it's all grouping us. So when you would first hear like Ray Charles or Sam Cooke or Otis, would you recognize the gospel? Is mm -hmm. that why you, you related to that music? Coming out of them because uh I grew up listening to Ray Charles, Elvis Presley. Um, Sam Cooke, all these great guys, Jack Wilson, mm. um, Jess Brown, Little Richard, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Hey. Those are the guys. <laughs> these people are great, man. Very great. <laughs> uh, very great. Yeah. So it's it's going from then to then to then, there, here and everywhere. Yes. How the touch of the gospel, you can explain 
in your song. Yes. That's why when I write my song, I don't write foolish words. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So yeah, and in, in there, I mean, he he makes it clear it, it all came from from that, didn't it? Yeah, for sure. I mean, he listened deeply, and he, you know, he, Otis Redding even performed in Jamaica in 1967, and and he soaked that up. And Ray Charles was really the guy that he he really. I think modeled himself after. And one, one of the most interesting things to me about it is that Toots loved country and Western. So, mm. so did Ray. So did a lot of those, you know, those lines back then were more blurry than, than they seem when you look back in retrospect. So country and Western was always a big influence on Toots's music as it was on Ray's. Mm. Um, and so he digested those influences and had the same gospel background as a lot of those early soul singers. But he also had the African drumming. He had the heavy Jamaican, you know, Coptic church influences. So there was a lot of stuff brewing around in there. But ultimately, deep down, I think, you know, Toots is, is a soul singer. And when he came out of jail, he, he had a really important song that, that kind of drew on, on some of that experience. Yeah, you know, um, you know, his song that he wrote in jail was 5446, That's My Number, which, you know, he didn't actually ever have a jail number, and he wants everyone to understand that it, that, that part of it was fictitious, mm. that he was in a kind of minimum security facility where he had his wife would cook his meals, and he had his guitar, and he could write songs. But that song, that sort of outlaw spirit of that song and the betrayal of the law on him that became his defining anthem in much the same way that maybe, you know, Folsom Prison Blues was for Johnny Cash or Mama Tried was for Merle Haggard. That song became the anthem. And I mean, you know, listen to it today. It's like, it's undeniable um, how powerful and and great it is. I mean, I think one of the the sort of interesting things is so many of Toots' songs are about pain and hardship and adversity, and yet you know they're they're listened to as joyful uh, celebrations. Hmm. His singing is incredible. I mean, on something like Funky Kingston, the roughness of his voice is so appealing and, and also so stark. But then he he can also smooth it out when necessary. It seemed like he could do a lot of different things with it with his voice. Yeah, he, ha- he definitely, there is a grit in there and also an ability to really soar. I mean, one of the, one of my favorite memories of being with Toots was one a- afternoon driving around in the countryside and he was playing a CD of a version of an Otis Redding song that he had just cut himself just to, I don't know, just staying in practice, whatever he was doing. And as he reached the end of the song, just that soaring urgent falsetto that I'd never, I mean, you know, at 76 years old or whatever he was at that point, I mean, it was incredible how preserved and intact his voice remained, you know, but his voice was always different. It, It had a little bit of that country in it. It had a little bit of that rawness. You know, there was a, the story he has said that when he first showed up at studio one, which was the big studio in Kingston in the early sixties, Cox and Dodd, who was the, the the producer at Studio One, said, well, you know, um, interesting, your voice is weird, you know, I've never heard a voice like that. Why don't you come back in a few weeks? And so Toots, you know, said he left, and then he came back with the same voice, you know, um, <laughs> and finally talked his way into recording. But 
it took a little while for people to get used to that voice. Now, maybe we should start from the beginning. And, we, you know, you touched on his childhood, but where and how did he grow up? How did all that figure into the way the music developed? Yeah, um, Toots grew up in a family. Both his parents were preachers. Um, so he spent almost all of his childhood in the church. He had 13 brothers and sisters. Um, his mother was also a midwife, and she actually died when he was eight years old. Hmm. Um, his father then died when he was 11 years old. He was raised after that mostly by his, his older siblings. He was the youngest of 14. But their life was rural. It was all around the church. Growing up, he wasn't even allowed to dance. Um, there was no dancing. So you can only imagine once he left his small town and left the church and came to Kingston where he worked in a barber shop and heard all the music pouring out of the street and met other musicians who came from similarly rural environments. It must have just been an explosion of creativity. He had a guitar. He had this natural voice, which was unconventional. And he started to gravitate towards the music scene. So I think that the, the church component of it, the gospel music was so deep in him and it carried through, you know, all the way through the end of his career. It always went back to the gospel. You know, again, similarly to someone like Johnny Cash, mm. um, the gospel was always in there. You spent a, a lot of time with Johnny Cash. Were they at all similar? Did, were you reminded of? Not, 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 I wasn't so much reminded of, of Johnny Cash, but I, except for in the fact that, you know, when you think of an icon, in their land, you know, Johnny Cash sort of represented America in a really real way, in a powerful way, and in a positive way. Um, he could bridge divides. He he was a, a kind of man of the people, but also, you know, he had a kind of seriousness to him. Toots is like that. When you're when you're in Kingston, Jamaica, with Toots, it's that same feeling as if you might, you know, what it might be like to be with Johnny Cash in Nashville or somewhere in in, in America. Um, Toots has that gravitas but also has that connection with the people. And it, 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 it felt very powerful like that. And then obviously they also had a similar, um, you know, hits around um, writing about prison, although Johnny Cash was never himself in prison. So yeah, I mean, th there's sort of those similarities. You mentioned the, his first time at Studio One. And uh, when he did come back, he recorded eight tracks in one day. And for one of the songs, his total payment was one patty. Was that like a hamburger patty? What does that mean? Well, patty is like a Jamaican minced meat, um, ah. you know, sandwich. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that's the way it was, you know, I mean, and um, you were lucky to get to record. That's how the musicians felt at that time. And they gave away all their rights. And, um, you know, it wasn't until years later that Toots figured that out. But, you know, I think part of that being arrested and, you know, falsely, all those things really, really affected him deeply and caused him to feel a great sense of betrayal and suspicion, which later really hurt him, you know, because he didn't trust, didn't quite know who to trust in his career. Um, so he didn't always make the right decisions commercially for himself, didn't always sign the best deals. And I think all that comes from the very beginning of his career, and it was not something he was ever really able to get past. I love that he said to you that he realized the way to write lyrics was, I realized it's like writing a letter to a girl. It's got to sound like you mean it. I fill up the notebooks like writing love letters. I have this talent from God. I could write a song about you before I even put it on paper. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's, there's, there's great examples of that too. I mean, there's a great story. That, you know the song Monkey Man? Yes. 
is um, one of his great songs. And, and Monkey Man came out of like a quandary because the, the, the owner of the record label, Leslie Kong, actually basically forced Toots to write a song about his brother. But his brother was like this Neanderthal guy who Toots didn't like and nobody liked. And Toots didn't know how to write a song about this guy, you know, that was not going to offend him or, or, or the producer. So he wrote Monkey Man and made it kind of fun. But if you listen to Monkey Man, you know, it's not that kind. Among the early songs, that song, uh, Six and Seven Books of Moses, is incredible. Yeah. He, kind he of- had these, this ability to write these sort of, you know, sort of biblical epics, sort of recontextualized biblical stories in this way. Um, you know, and I, I, like I said earlier, I think Bam Bam is just how someone so young would have the prescience to write those words, um, you know, which were... I want you to know that I am the man who fight for the right, not for the wrong. Going there, I'm growing there, helping the weak against the strong. Soon you will find out the man I'm supposed to be. I mean... Wow. Wow. Song's so good, they put him in jail. Uh, <laughs> let, let's hear uh, Tuts talking about his overall message. Did you learn about Rastafari when you were still up in um, Clarendon or down in Kingston? Kingston. Mm-hmm. It must have been an exciting time when you first came to Kingston. Big city, independence. It was great. Was well, greater than now, the living was okay. Mm-hmm. Better than now. Um, because when you, those days, things never change, has it? changed a lot since, you know? Yeah. Even a few years later, it seems like that things got a little tougher. Yeah. Um, more dangerous, less money, yeah. less hope. Yeah. Was that what you were trying to address in Pressure Drop? Yes. All of my songs tell a story about life, the way of life, but, you know, what most, you, of it, most of it. What is the message you want to get across? You know, the message that I get across all the time to people, the love, people the way you love yourself, mm-hmm. that, will, that will make a great change. You don't hurt no one, let no one hurt you. Mm-hmm. I don't put yourself in any way that someone will hurt you. Mm-hmm. But it's hard for you. But you have to know that. You have to be in the right place at the right time. Mm-hmm. If the different places don't have God in your heart, you really go different places and get hurt. So mm-hmm. you, have to, you have to teach people all these things. Right. And in the song and in the talking. Do you think it was always your role to be the teacher? Yeah. From when you were a boy, yeah? Because I know it. We didn't know the truth. And someone else don't know the truth. You have to teach him. Mm-hmm. So a man who knows not what he knows of is a, is a fool. You have to mm-hmm. teach him. But the man who knows all what he knows of, he's a wise man. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's also a lot of responsibility. Yeah. A lot of pressure. Mm-hmm. 
Jason, what what drew you to the idea of doing this feature in the first place? I mean, you, you committed a lot of time to this. What was it about Toots in advance before you even got to meet him? You know, I, I was thinking about whose story hadn't really been told of the sort of icons and originals. Where I grew up in, in Southern California, you know, Toots was a big star to me growing up. It was some of my earliest records were, were Toots records because we had a reggae record store in the town I, I grew up in. Wow. And so Toots always figured large in my imagination, but I didn't know much about him. And when I started to look into his story, I found that there wasn't really ever much written about him. And that surprised me. So I thought, well, let me try and see if I can tell his story. I learned along the way why. <laughs> maybe um, nobody else had really written his story because it, it wasn't easy, you know, I mean, just the process of tracking him down and, and sort of getting him to agree to do it took, you know, a couple of years, just, just that part alone. But once we got into it and once, um, you know, he sort of trusted me and broke, broke through a little bit, it was really gratifying and it was really wonderful experience. And before we dig into your experience, which is pretty amazing, Maybe talk a little bit about the song Pressure Drop, because for a lot of people, that's the high, perhaps the high point of his career and certainly a, an absolute classic and super important song. Yeah, I mean, it, one of the things that I started to recognize was that early in Toots' career and sort of the Scon Rocksteady days, so like in the you know early to mid-60s, the songs were very buoyant and very positive, you know, songs like Sweet and Dandy about a, a wedding ceremony and things like that. But as the sort of 60s, sort of the promise of Jamaica's independence turned a bit sour a little later in the 60s and as things got a little heavier, mm. um, Toots really responded to those times with some heavier songs. And Pressure Drop is is probably the great one. It's a very simple statement that is like all the great Toots songs really ultimately just about karma and revenge. You can feel all the things that you talked about that happened to him emotionally after jail. You can really hear that all of that in that song, the the paranoia and everything else, the slight souring of, of an overall temperament. You can hear, and I think it's part of what makes that song great. There's a claustrophobia and, and, and so much going on. In that song. Yeah, and you know, Brian, I mean, that's kind of one of the things that was really challenging to write about Toots was he is both of those things. I mean, he is one of the greatest, most fun spirits, energized, enjoys life more than anyone I've ever met, but also has, has there's a lot of darkness. Mm. Um, and, and sort of navigating those two sides, I think, is, is what he sort of brilliantly does in his music maybe more challenged to do that in life. So yeah, I, I, I think, you know, you feel that, that betrayal that he felt. And I think it's not just his personal betrayal, but it's the idea of this, this hangover that came, you know, after Jamaica um, sort of rolled into the 60s with all this hope and promise, and then things didn't get that much better and in fact started to get really, really worse. So your story starts out with your first encounter with him, but maybe take us through what that was like. Because again, this, as you said, this wasn't the kind of story where you were, you know, some representative set it up and you met in a, in a hotel in, in LA and, and uh, had lunch and left. This was, this, there were some complications here. I mean, it was, it was really funny actually, because I, I'd been trying to track him down for a long time and sort of just hadn't really been able to get through and didn't ever get 
answers. And, and then I found out through a friend that knew him that he was going to be in New York. So I arranged this sort of elaborate setup where, where <laughs> I, I invited Toots to go to my friend had a, has a hat shop on 57th street. And so I, I arranged for at the end of the day for Toots to come to the hat shop and then I rented like a Chevy Suburban, which I had downstairs. And then I made reservation at the King Cole bar and then thought, all right, we're going to get the hat. You know, we're going to look at the hats. Then we're going to get in the car and, and Toots is not going to know it hit. And so we're, we're up in the hat shop and, you know, Toots shows up maybe an hour and a half late and he's got about five people with him and he kind of rolls in. And the first thing he says is, you know, who's Jason fine and what am I doing here? And I said, I'm Jason, and we're going we're gonna to look at some hats. <laughs> and I didn't know how it was going to go. But he, he loved the hat shop. Uh, he ended up with a great bolero. And then, you know, we went downstairs after, and I don't know what he was expecting, but we just got in the Suburban, and we went to the King Cole Bar. And we ended up having a great night. Um, and at, during that night, he invited me to come visit him in Kingston. So it kind of went from there. And, you know... I go to Jamaica a lot anyway, just on my own, and I come through Kingston a lot on the way to where I'm going. So it became kind of convenient that when I would be going to Jamaica, I would stop in Kingston, I'd have dinner with, with Toots, maybe go with him to the studio for a day or a few hours, and then be on my way. So it kind of rolled out slowly that way. You know, what was awesome was to get to spend so much time with him. Mm. Um, to get to know him, to meet his family, to really just sit and talk. What was really hard was getting actual interviews because he really did not look forward to that part of it. And it was really, really hard, um, except for in certain flashes of time when, when we'd you know, be really productive in terms of conducting interviews. So it, it did take a while. You went to his uh, sister's house, uh, that, who, who I believe you said was so religious in keeping with the faith that he was brought up in that she hadn't really heard his music. <laughs> right? It was quite incredible. You know, um, it took some persuading to get him to agree to go to his hometown with me and his sister, who's his only other living, his only living sibling left. Iseline, she goes by Bertie lives in the same house where Toots was born. And where, you know, the, the parents and the, the original family homestead is. And the parents wow. are buried in the back and family relatives still live down, down the road. And it's a dirt road and a small cabin. And, you know, so we went up there and it was, you know, it was a bit intimidating. And Toots wanted to bring her some noni juice, which is an herbal remedy for, you know, joints and arthritis and things like that. And when we got to the house, he didn't want to get out of the car. Wow. Um, he, he felt that there was going to be too much attention placed on, on him. And he usually goes early in the morning or late night when there aren't a lot of people around, but when there are a lot of people around, he, he sort of wanted to stay out of sight. So he was kind of ducking down in the back seat with his sunglasses on. And I just, you know, walked up with the noni juice to, <laughs> to meet, to meet Bertie and Bertie was like as sweet as could be sort of held my hand. We sat on her porch. But yeah, she she is a churchwoman, and um, and she's not heard Toots's music or seen him perform live, which was quite incredible. That's wild. What is his relationship with Rastafarianism? What do you talk to him a little bit about that? Yeah, Toots is um, 
Toots is a Rasta through and through. Toots is a, what they call, or what he calls a, a comb lock Rasta, meaning he didn't grow his dreads. Um, unlike, you know, like Bob Marley with the long dreads. Toots doesn't have the long dreads, but he is, um, he's a Rasta. He might see it slightly differently than other people. He sees Rastafarianism as well as the religions that he grew up with, you know, as very similar parts of the same humanity and spirit. So, you know, I don't think he's overtly religious, but he identifies with, um, Rasta spirituality. And what was his intake of ganja like? <laughs> what, what, what were we talking about here? Uh, it's, yeah, it's, it's, um, it's epic. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's, it's epic. And, and there is uh, also a lot of rum and Jack Daniels involved. You describe, uh, you know, going to a bar with him on like a Tuesday morning or something in, in Jamaica. And it just, it just sounds like, uh, you know, one of the peak uh, profiling experiences one could have. Yeah, I mean, I sort of had this thought in my head, you know, we, we rolled into this bar in the country and it's like 11 a.m. on a Monday morning. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm working. <laughs> but reporting on Toots, I mean, truly is like a full contact sport, you know. It is, you, it's just full on. You're, you're in and he's in and it's physical and it's emotional and it's, filled with uncertainty. And most of the time I had no idea what was happening next, where we were going, when we were meeting, you know, he might show up four hours early. He might show up five hours late. There, there was one night when I was actually with my son um, who got grow, grew really close to, to Toots as well. And Toots said he was going to come pick us up and take us to dinner at a place called Jojo's where we ended up doing the photo shoot at a later time. And we were waiting in the lobby. He said, we'll be in the lobby at six. And we were in the lobby and I was with my son who's nine and at seven, at eight, at nine. And finally at nine o'clock, you know, my son was really hungry. And I thought, well, I guess we'll just get a cab and just go to JoJo's and then we'll meet Toots there. So we get in a cab and JoJo's, it turns out, is directly across the street from the hotel. It was like 10 yards away. We could have crossed the street and walked into JoJo's, but I had no idea knowing that. We get to JoJo's, we order dinner, and then Toots shows up, you know, around 10.15, as if, hey, you know, it was sort of like that all the time. Um, there was another time where it was his birthday, um, and he was going to have a party for his birthday, which he has every year at his house. It's a big event. It's very, um, it's families and friends, and it's a really fun, festive event. And he really wanted to make sure that we got there, you know, at six o'clock for the start of the party. And he was calling me around three, you, you're going to be on time. You're going to be there. Yeah, we're going to be there. You know, then around 430 he called and he said, well, how are you getting here? I said, we're just going to get a cab. And he said, no, 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 no. I'm going to come for you. I'll be there at five and I'll, I'll come get you. And I said, you don't have to. It's your party. We'll, we'll get there. It's fine. He said, no, no, I'll, I'll be there. Wait, be in the lobby at five. So we went to the lobby at five, ordered some drinks ordered another round of drinks. He sort of arrived around 6.30 in the, in the lobby of the hotel and then ordered more drinks and we ended up getting to his house to his own party around eight. You know? So you just sort of never know uh, what's gonna happen. Now, part of what you experienced was he was working on this, this comeback album, Got To Be Tough, which I think he, had, he hadn't released an album in like 10 years. Uh, and Zach Starkey, who uh, people know as uh, Ringo Starr's son and also the, the drummer for The Who, 
uh, ended up as the producer. How did I, I don't even know how did Zach even get involved? What, what was that all about? Yeah, Zach is loves reggae music. Um, grew up listening to Toots, real connoisseur of reggae music, and launched a label in Jamaica, Trojan Jamaica Records, and was really doing a kind of amazing job of bringing together um, some of the original reggae legends who are still around and vital. And he worked a long time to um, get Toots comfortable with the idea. Toots was recording just all the time. You know, Toots, Toots had an accident in 2012. He was hit with a bottle on stage, a big vodka bottle hit him in the head. And it was a serious injury. Um, and he wasn't able to tour or do too much. There was, some there was some legal stuff around that as well. There was legal stuff, but it was also, there was a lot of health stuff. The concussion yeah. affected him deeply, emotionally and physically. He was dizzy. He was depressed. So he was grounded really for three years. And during that three years, he has a studio um, at his house, which he calls the Reggae Center, which is really you know, as, as sort of grand as that sounds, it's, it's, you know, just a tiny apartment in the back of his, of his home. And he is in the reggae center, was in the reggae center every day for nine or 10 hours a day, recording wow. obsessively. His engineer was there with him. He would cut tracks, write new songs, cut new tracks, write diff cut different versions of them, bring in guest artists. He played almost every instrument by himself. So he had hundreds of songs. So when, when finally he and Zach got together, you know, Zach went through some of that material and picked the songs that they then re-recorded for Got To Be Tough. And there's great stuff on that, and that album is out. And uh, unfortunately, I guess it's the I guess it's the final album, except that it sounds like there's a ton of other stuff in the in the archives. There are hundreds of tracks. I mean, one of the songs that I, I write about in the story is called Two Shillings, Ten Shillings. I can't remember the exact title. Um, and it's one of the one of the greatest, most sort of defiant Toots songs in the tradition of all of Toots's great songs that I've heard. So Ten Shillings. Yeah, Ten Shillings. Ten Shillings. So there's 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 a lot of stuff in there that hopefully will get, you know, treated properly and come out properly. Jason, we were talking about what will at least be the final album of, of his lifetime. And part of the, the tragedy here is that he was really invested in this comeback. He had a lot of people he was supporting, felt a ton of responsibility. So there was, there was a lot going on here. So it's kind of, it's a, you know, it only compounds the, I guess, the tragedy of losing him at this particular time. I think, you know, in knowing him, all he cared about was the work. That's what he was all about. He was working every day, all the time on music, recording music, thinking about music. He had so much that he wanted to say. He felt um, certainly a responsibility kind of in the world in this moment. You know, he felt he really did sort of feel as if a voice of reason, a voice of wisdom, a voice of healing was needed. And he felt, I think that a lot of those voices were, were no longer here and he was. And so he felt that, that drive to do that. At the same time, he takes care of a lot of people, you know, Toots, he has an extended family. I mean, he's known for his generosity. Um, he helps people who need help. He goes around Kingston passing out medications for people who need medications and giving 
when I would be with him and you go to the gas station, always a little extra money for the gas station attendant. Mm. So he, he also had that spirit of generosity. He adopted kids and, and family. There were always people over and people around his extended family lives on the same compound. So he did feel that if he didn't continue, you know, a lot of this stuff wouldn't be able to happen. A lot of it would fall apart. And so he did also have that sense of responsibility and, you know, I mean, just temperamentally, he's a warrior. He's a worker. He's a guy who felt a great sense of duty to his craft and also to his people. So, yeah, it's, um, you know, and, and, and just in the last week being in touch with a lot of those people, you really see how much he stitched together. And there's a lot of people who are really lost um, because of that. And I think, you know, it's, it's, it's something that's going to be really painful for a long time. I mean, that song you mentioned, uh, Ten Shillings, was about the very fact that the early deals that he was signed to and a lot of his contemporaries were signed to were, were basically total ripoffs and that they were never compensated the way they should have been. And, you know, this is a guy who should be, by all rights, should have been super wealthy. I mean, this is a, this is a giant of music. And for many of the reasons that you've mentioned and others, like that, that wasn't the case. It, 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 you know. No, it absolutely wasn't. And, you know, I mean, he didn't always do himself favors in that regard. But at the same time, he was certainly um, exploited and taken advantage of over and over again. And like I said earlier, you know, he didn't always know how to trust or who to trust. And those things, you know, didn't help. But, you know, when you go to the Kingston airport, Toots is playing on a loop um, in the arrival terminals. I mean, he wow. is an ambassador of this music, but he's not getting paid for that. I did want to jump back to just this, you know, his relationship with Bob Marley and the idea that, as I said at the beginning, by the mid-60s, the Maytals, who were his, his vocal group, that was the top group in Jamaica. And Bob Marley and the Wellers were just coming up right behind them. And it was there was a real family vibe between all these artists in, in Kingston. And he names, he names every single <laughs> reggae artist of the era, Lee Perry, Bunny Whaler, Peter Tosh, Jimmy Cliff. They were, they were all friendly. It was competitive and friendly, a golden time. I mean, that's, that's kind of awe inspiring for me to think of all those guys hanging out together. Yeah. And you know, I didn't, you know, I didn't really put that into perspective until Ziggy Marley told me, that he remembers times from when he was a kid and Toots and all these other reggae singers would be over at the Marley house, which was a kind of famous compound on Hope Road. And that, that there was that vibe and that communality between them. You know, I mean, I asked Toots about, about this and, and it was really interesting what he said that, you know, something about that he didn't see Marley that often, but when they did, the things they talked about, they were, they were really well aware that the music that they were making was much, much bigger than where it came from. And that must have been such an incredible thing to realize in real time, being both of them kids from rural environments who didn't have a lot of education, and yet the music and the message, really, that of what they were doing was having a kind of global impact. I mean, that's a wild story. What did uh, Chris Blackwell have to say about Tuts? What or what stands out most in your memory about what what Chris had to say? Well, I I only I spoke to Chris over email, and uh, you know, Chris has the utmost respect for Tuts, 
Um, and I get, I don't know, but it seems like they've had an on and off relationship professionally over the years. That's shocking. Yeah. But you know what? I mean, Chris, what it came down to to Chris is, is that voice, just that voice. You know, Chris told me this, the story of Funky Kingston, which is essentially that Chris came to Tootsie. Chris had heard this song called Funky Nassau and said, oh, you know, Tootsie, you got to do a song like that about Kingston. <laughs> and he came back with Funky Kingston, like one of the greatest reggae songs or, or, or any songs of all time, maybe. And, um, and, so great. and Toot, Chris was very in awe of that. And he, I think he got Steve Winwood to, to, to yeah, play Winwood, on that. Yeah, right? Winwood plays on that track, you know. And you know what's wild is I was thinking about this, was that that album, which Chris Blackwell co-produced, was the same year as the Bob Marley album, Catch a Fire, hmm. which is really wild because both of those albums have rock and roll influences on them and were sort of crossed over to an American audience in a way that reggae hadn't before that. Now, we only have a couple more minutes left, but I wanted to see if there's other moments in all the time you shared with Toots that, that really stand out, that seemed really special to you. We used to always go to this, this seafood restaurant called Screechy, which is in a place called Helsher, which is in, in Kingston, but outside of Kingston in, in, sort of the, in a place called Portmore. And there's a seafood restaurant that's on the beach. And it's this guy Screechy, and Screechy is really famous for making a specific fried snapper um, lobsters that that he catches. And we would always go to Screechy. And one night we were out, and it was late, and um, and Toots said, "Well, tomorrow's Screechy day," you know. And I said, "Great." He said, "But it's Friday, so we can't hit rush hour. So we have to leave at noon for Screechy." And I was like, "Noon's kind. Of, I mean, we're, we can't leave at three? He said, "No, we have to leave at noon." So. <laughs> I went over to his house at noon. I mean, we had been out until maybe two or three in the morning. I went over to his house at noon. He, of course, wasn't awake. Um, I waited for him. He finally got up around 1.30. Then he said he had to go to the studio. And then he was in the studio for four hours. And then at 5.30, right at the peak of, of rush hour, he's ready to go to Screechy. So we get in the car and we drive out to Screechy. And all of a sudden there's all these other cars coming with us and there's a video crew and there's like women dancing and there's like his grandson. And all of a sudden we get to Screechy and there's like 25 people and I have no idea who he called or where they came from, you know, and oh yeah, I'm Toots' nephew and I'm his grandson and yeah, we're making a video and I don't know what's going on. So we have this epic meal, you know, at this big table at Screechy and then the end of it comes, you know, and I was sort of planning to pay for us, but I was not definitely planning to pay for 25 people. <laughs> and so the end of it comes in there and we're sort of standing around and, and then um, Toots looks at me and he's like, do you have any money? <laughs> and, and I said, well, I got, you know, I got like, I got like 30 bucks. <laughs> and he's like, I don't, I don't have any money. <laughs> and we had no money. <laughs> no one had any money. <laughs> And so we had to sort of talk our way out of that bill at Screechy. And it was just like, you know, it's just like the fun of it, the joy of it, the energy of it. You know, um, I could never keep up with Toots. And I could never keep up with how he thought. I could never keep up with how hard he worked. I could never keep up with how much fun he was to be. And what just a great, you know, blessing he was to me personally. Um, and how much he cared, but how much he cared for so many people. I mean, he really felt deeply. 
Jason Fine, thanks so much for uh, taking the time to do this. Be sure to check out Jason's feature on the late Toots Hibbert. It's a sort of classic old school Rolling Stone feature, and I'm not just saying that because he's my boss. And uh, this is today's Rolling Stone music now. We'll be back next week here on Sirius XM's volume. In the meantime, we are a podcast. Download us as a podcast. Subscribe to us as a podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Maybe leave us a nice review on iTunes. We do read them all. But as always, thanks for listening. Stay safe, and we'll see you next week. Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Guest star Sarah Carter as Alicia Baker. Although I didn't really work with her a lot. But Tom did, and they had some real big smoochy scenes. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Could there be any more sex? What was a three-page makeout scene that just kept going? Good Lord, we get it. They have chemistry. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen.